Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, and my goal today is to cover uh, verses 1 through 24, and the title of the message this morning is The Fall of Babylon the Great, The Fall of Babylon the Great. The Great. In 1898, the American author Morgan Robertson wrote a fictional tale about the sinking of a large steamship called the Titan. In his fictional work, the ship was said to be unsinkable, but while on a voyage through the North Atlantic in the month of April, It was traveling too fast and hit an iceberg on its starboard side. The ship was built to sustain such an impact, but it does not survive. It sinks about 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, and in Robertson's fictional work, the ship was carrying too few lifeboats to save everyone on board, causing needless loss of life. Fourteen years later, as you all know, a ship called Titanic, boasting dimensions similar to the Titan and said to be unsinkable, was traveling too fast through the North Atlantic during the month of April, and it, too, hit an iceberg. And just as in Robertson's story, the Titanic was actually built to sustain such an impact, but it did not survive. It sank about 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, and the ship was carrying too few lifeboats to save everyone on board, causing needless loss of life. After the Titanic sank, people tried to credit Robertson with some kind of special clairvoyance, but Robertson vehemently denied any such thing, insisting that any correlation between his fictional work and the sinking of the Titanic was merely coincidental. I begin my message on this note this morning to remind you that the book of Revelation is no work of fiction that might happen to have a few coincidental similarities to future events. The Apostle John is writing a very earnest letter to the seven churches of Asia during a time in which Rome was his own generation's version of the coming Babylon. And John wants his readers to know that he is explicitly telling the future. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, John tells his readers that Jesus appeared to him and instructed him to, and I'm quoting from Revelation 1:19, to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. John wants us to know that Jesus is literally giving him a revelation of things to come. 
And among those things is how human history is going to come to its climax. Among those things is the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet and the judgments of God that are going to fall upon the world in a future day, including the seven bowls of God's wrath that we saw poured out in Revelation chapter 16. And among the things that John foretells in Revelation 17 and 18 is the sinking of the unsinkable city, Babylon the Great. Last week, we studied Revelation chapter 17, and we saw how Babylon is depicted as a great harlot being carried by a scarlet beast with seven heads and with ten horns. And we saw how the city of Babylon enjoys an alliance with this beast or the Antichrist and his ten kings for a period of time. But then at some point, we learned in verse 16 of Revelation 17 that these kings and the beast will hate the harlot, the text says, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Ultimately, we will observe Babylon getting slammed from two directions. She will be attacked by the Antichrist and his ten kings when they are done with her, and she will be judged from above with terrible judgments that God will be pouring out upon her. And in the end, she will fall, never to rise again. And in Revelation 18, the chapter that we come to today, we see the terrible fall of Babylon recorded in greater detail for us. And as you'll see on your notes, um, kind of the way we're going to break down our study of this chapter is we'll observe seven events. We could even call them seven verbal events in connection with the fall of Babylon at the end of the age. And the first of these verbal events is, number one, an angel descends toward earth declaring the fall of Babylon. An angel descends toward earth declaring the fall of Babylon. Observe what John sees in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 18. Let's read this. He says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The book of Revelation, as you guys have noticed, no doubt, is full of angels, but this is an angel of unusually great authority who lights up the earth like the flash of an atom bomb. And this powerful angel opens his mouth and cries out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. What a pronouncement here. And the double use of the word fallen here shows the total nature of Babylon's collapse. Chapter 7 shows how, or chapter 17 shows how Babylon is destroyed by the Antichrist and his ten kings. 
And chapter 18 is going to show how she is destroyed from God's judgment. The language here is final. Babylon is falling, truly falling, never, ever to rise again. There is no bouncing back from this collapse. In verse 2, this angel continues uh, speaking and says, She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Not everyone that you're going to read, every commentator on Revelation will interpret this part of verse 2 in the same way, but I would agree with those who would say that these words are a description of Babylon after her fall. Yet even this description of the city of Babylon after its fall is tied to its condition before its fall. The commentator Robert Mount says it this way, since Babylon was already the habitation of evil spirits before she falls, it follows that when she falls, nothing will remain but the evil and unclean spirits. Before Babylon's collapse, it will represent in fullest measure mankind united in godless community. And what happens when God is removed from a society? Demons come in and take God's place. There's no other alternative. As Douglas Kelly says, when a culture turns its back on God, the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, leaving a vacuum, and guess who rushes in to fill it? The evil one and his demons. So what Babylon got for its ejection of God from society was a whole host of demons who happily rushed in and took God's place. And now that Babylon is destroyed, the only thing left are the demons and the unclean spirits in addition to every unclean and hateful bird that is now feasting on the flesh of those who have been killed in these judgments. I think we should be forewarned by this fate that befalls Babylon in every case, even in our own society, where God is being pushed out of various sectors of our society, that space from which he has been removed doesn't just become an empty space, but a space that quickly becomes inhabited by demons, which then create additional problems that our society now has to scramble to find some secular solution to all of which merely hastens its demise. Now, why does God's judgment fall upon Babylon in the way being described here in verses 1 and 2? Well, verse 3, the angel says, and I'll read his words, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth, have become rich by the wealth or literally by the power 
of her sensuality or brazen lewdness. Notice who has joined Babylon in her wickedness. The nations, the kings, and the merchants of the earth. That's pretty much every level of society around the globe. And notice the three actions that are stated here. The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her brazen lewdness. And notice the words used to describe Babylon's sins. We have reference in this verse to the passion of her immorality, to acts of immorality, and her sensuality. All these references speak to the spiritual unfaithfulness of Babylon to God as she has gone whoring after the worship of anything other than the one true God. Yet it also speaks of the gross immorality and sensuality that her idolatry will give way to as a result. And sadly, we see the same thing happening in our society today. Our society is removing God from its consciousness. And what is now taking God's place are many forms of sexual sin and perversion. In fact, what we're seeing is the deification of sexual urges that are now viewed as so sacred that you dare not speak against them. In fact, to call someone sexual desires wrong nowadays is our society's new blasphemy. And this should not surprise us at all because when you remove the true God of the Bible from people's consciences, they will inevitably elevate something to the place that was once inhabited by God. And for many people, it is their illicit, sinful, sexual desires outside of marriage that assume the place of God. And this is going to be the case with Babylon at the end of the age. Babylon will be consumed with sexual immorality and all forms of brazen lewdness and sensuality, providing the people of the world with all sorts of means to satisfy their sexual lusts. And this is among the key reasons that God's judgment is going to fall upon Babylon, as it says here in verse 3. This declaration from this angel is not the only thing spoken in connection to the fall of Babylon in this chapter, there's another voice that begins to speak, and this voice comes from heaven itself. And this brings us to the second verbal event in connection with the fall of Babylon. Number two, a voice from heaven commands God's people to come out of Babylon. A voice from heaven commands God's people to come out of Babylon. Observe what John hears in verses uh, 4 and 5. Let's just focus on verse 4 here. He says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Notice the call. Come out of her, my people. 
This call is very similar to Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45, where God is foretelling the judgment that he's going to visit upon Babylon in an earlier time. And then he says in Jeremiah 51, 45, come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you save yourself from the fierce anger of the Lord. You don't want to be around Babylon when my judgment falls upon her. And that's essentially the message here in Revelation 18. Only two reasons are given here instead of one. In verse 4, the voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and, number two, receive of her plagues. God's people are being warned not to participate in or literally fellowship together with Babylon's sins. And even now, this warning applies to us as we live in what amounts to an earlier version of the great Babylon to come. We must be careful and discerning, seeking to discern the idolatries that are at work in our culture and make sure that we don't get sucked into those idolatries and become a participant in the very sins our culture is engaging upon or engaging in that will invite God's judgment. But notice the second reason given in verse 4. This voice from heaven tells God's people to come out of Babylon so that, it says, you will not receive of her plagues. If a person does not sufficiently distance himself or herself from Babylon, they can easily get swept up in the sins of Babylon and end up finding themselves on the receiving end of the judgment of God upon Babylon. So come out of her, my people, the heavenly voice says, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Why is this something to worry about? Well, because Babylon is right now in Revelation 18 ripe for the judgment of God. In verse 5, this voice from heaven says, for her sins, look at verse 5, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. The Greek word that is translated piled up here is actually the word that speaks of gluing things together. The point is that Babylon's sins have all been joined together into one solid heap that is now piled as high as heaven. And the irony here is inescapable. Back in Genesis 11, the original inhabitants of ancient Babylon wanted to build a tower that reached as high as heaven. Yet here we are told that Babylon's sins have piled up as high as heaven, which teaches us a sad but valuable lesson. Not only will mankind forever fail to build a tower that gets him to heaven, the only tower to heaven that mankind can ever successfully build is the tower of his own sin. 
that reaches heaven. As for God's disposition toward all of this in Babylon's case, this voice from heaven says, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, he's now remembering Babylon's crooked and perverse behavior against her, and he stands ready to judge her for her sins. Interestingly, this voice from heaven continues speaking and does more than merely announce what's going to happen to Babylon. This voice actually utters the decrees that bring it on. And this brings us to the third verbal event in this chapter in connection with the fall of Babylon in the age or in the future. Number three, a voice from heaven decrees plagues upon Babylon. A voice from heaven decrees plagues upon Babylon. Speaking about Babylon, this voice from heaven says in verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double. Literally, the Greek says double to her doubles according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her or mix a double portion for her is what this heavenly voice is now saying. We have to be careful in how we read the language that's being spoken here. When you see the word double here in this passage and even the word twice um, that shows up in this passage, which is the same Greek word, don't think of the judgment as being twice as much as what is deserved, but think, think of it as being the exact equivalent of Babylon's sins. When you meet someone's identical twin, you might refer to that identical twin as their double, right? And when you do that, you're not saying that that other twin is twice the person uh, that the original twin is. You're saying they're an exact match, apparently. And that's the idea here. This voice from heaven is insisting that Babylon be paid back even as she has paid, that she be given the double portion that serves as the exact equivalent of Babylon's double portion of sins, and that the cup of judgment that she be given be an exact double or match for the cup of sin that she has mixed and given to others with not a single sin going unpunished. In verse 7, this voice continues and says, To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. That's the way Babylon speaks, which invites God's judgment you might want to write down the reference Isaiah 47 verses 7 and 8 where the prophet Isaiah is quoting Babylon in a former time as saying, I shall be queen forever. I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow nor shall I know the loss of children. And the same attitude is said here to be the attitude of this Babylon of the future. And according to the heavenly voice that is speaking here, 
to the degree that Babylon has glorified herself rather than glorifying God, to the degree that she has lived sensuously and experienced sinful, carnal delights and sinful defiance of God, to that same degree she is to be given torment and mourning. And to the degree that she applauded herself and felt secure in her position, to that degree she should be given torment and mourning. Babylon thought that she was unsinkable and would go on living happily ever after And it is because of this very arrogance that she will be brought to a horrible and a sudden end here in this chapter. In fact, observe what this voice from heaven says in verse 8. For this reason, in other words, because of her self-glorification, her sensuality, her overconfidence, in one day her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Notice the words here in the text used to speak of what is coming Babylon's way. Plagues, pestilence, which speaks of disease that results in death and mourning and famine and being burned up with fire. All such things are involved We have seen in chapter 16 and the bowls of God's wrath along with the actions of the Antichrist and his 10 kings in chapter 17. And all these things will be brought upon Babylon, the great. Why? Because the Lord God who judges her is strong. And he has no trouble bringing down Babylon and the whole system in a single day if he wants to. How will the people of earth respond to the fall of Babylon when it happens? Well, this brings us to the next verbal event in connection with the fall of Babylon. Number four, the kings of the earth bewail the fall of Babylon. The kings of the earth bewail the fall of Babylon. Keep in mind that this voice from heaven is still speaking But as this voice is speaking, it's telling John in advance how the kings of the earth are going to respond with dismay to the fall of Babylon the Great. Observe what this heavenly voice says in verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Notice how in verse 10, these kings are said to be standing at a distance. I would encourage you to mark those words, standing at a distance at a distance because you're going to see this expression three times in this chapter. And the reason they're standing at a distance is because of the fear of her torment. They don't even think about running to Babylon's rescue for fear of getting caught up in her torment. But these kings 
are tormented nonetheless. We're told here that they are weeping, they are lamenting over Babylon with essentially loud wailing. And their words are most ironic as they wail over the destruction of Babylon, which no longer exists. They say, woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. This was Babylon's reputation in the eyes of the world. It was the greatest and strongest city on earth and was viewed as unsinkable. Yet God brought it down in a single day. In fact, he did even better than that. The kings of the earth will say at the end of verse 10, for in one hour your judgment has come. It took God all of one hour to bring the strong city of Babylon down. That's how strong God is. These exclamations express the kings of the earth's disappointment with Babylon as they look upon her collapse. And they're not the only ones wailing, which leads us to the fifth verbal event in connection with the fall of Babylon. Number five, the merchants of the earth bewail the fall of Babylon. The merchants of the earth bewail the fall of Babylon. In verses 11 and following, this voice from heaven speaks of the merchants of the earth. And says, beginning in verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood, and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and spice, and incense, and perfume, and frankincense, and wine, and olive oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and cattle, and sheep, and cargoes of horses, and chariots, and slaves and human lives. Wow. That list seemed rather innocent until we got to the very end. Verse 13, which shows the dark underbelly of the economy of Babylon, an economy that trafficked in slaves and human lives. The Roman Empire around the Apostle John's day boasted 60 million slaves. So imagine what the Babylonian system of the future will have being spoken of here. You'll be interested to know that the Greek word that is translated slaves here in the New American Standard at the end of verse 13 is not the normal New Testament word for slaves. This is the Greek word soma. Soma, which means bodies. Literally, we can translate these final words of verse 13 as bodies and human souls. The use of the word bodies here shows us how the world of this coming day will view these slaves. They will dehumanize their slaves 
and view them merely as bodies to do the work for them that they did not want to do. And the language used here also tells you the kind of trafficking that is being spoken about here, that it includes purchasing bodies to satisfy the sexual whims of their owners. Commenting on the terminology used here, the commentator Dennis Johnson says, and I quote, commerce in human flesh is the last of Babylon's imports, the culmination of a decadent culture's ruthless pursuit of pleasure, whatever the cost to others. In our world today, the sex trafficking industry does over $150 billion dollars in business each year as people traffic in human bodies to satisfy their sexual lust. And this trafficking in human bodies will only get worse as we get closer to the end of the age. Some commentators look at the very end of verse 13 and suggest that the voice from heaven uses the expression human lives or literally human psyches, human souls, to point out the right view of those bodies that are being bought and sold. In other words, the world views these slaves as merely bodies to be purchased and sold and owned and exploited, but this heavenly voice wants to emphasize that these are human souls that the world is trafficking in without any regard for the value of human life. Backing up a bit and looking more broadly at this text, what's especially revealing here in these verses is what these merchants are said to be grieving over. Did you catch it? As we read through those verses, as they witness the fall of Babylon, they're not grieving the loss of life They're not grieving the tragedy of sin. They're not grieving the eternal damnation of those who have died. Instead, the thing that they are bemoaning is found up in verse 11, where it says, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. That's what they're upset about. They have these shiploads of goods. They have shiploads of slaves, of bodies to sell to the highest bidder. And because there is no longer any Babylon, there is no longer anyone in Babylon to buy any of their goods. And so they wail because there's no one to buy their stuff anymore. Look at what else they're so upset about in verse 14. The fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. This is what these merchants of the earth are saying as they grieve Babylon and its fall. They're upset that the delicacies of Babylon and the luxuries of Babylon are no longer to be found and that their own luxurious life can no longer be supported by commerce with Babylon. This is what these merchants of the earth are upset about 
and they're inconsolable. In verses 15 through 17, the text says, the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance. And this is the second time that we have seen this expression. They will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city. She was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. Back in chapter 17, we saw Babylon portrayed as a harlot dressed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones. And these merchants are looking at Babylon's former wealth and beauty and all of that and saying, in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. Trillions upon trillions of dollars gone just like that. As the chapter continues, the morning continues among those merchants of the earth who made their living by the sea. In the latter part of verse 17 and following, the text says, and every ship master and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. This is now the third time that we see people standing at a distance who won't even think of getting close to Babylon for fear of getting caught up in her torment. The text continues in verse 18 where we're told that they stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Again, notice what they are bewailing. These are people who made their living by the sea and who had been made rich off of Babylon and her economy, and they are grieving that this source of their wealth has been laid waste in one hour. It seems that all three groups of mourners in this chapter, the kings of the earth, the land merchants of the earth, and the merchants of the sea are all selfishly grieving the fall of Babylon only in terms of their own narrow interests. In the midst of all this mourning and wailing among the kings and merchants of the earth, notice what this voice from heaven calls upon the inhabitants of heaven to do. This brings us to the sixth verbal event in connection with the fall of Babylon. Number six, a voice from heaven commands heaven to rejoice over God's judgment of Babylon. This voice from heaven commands the inhabitants of heaven to rejoice over God's judgment of Babylon. In verse 20, this voice from heaven says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. 
While everyone on earth, it seems, is mourning the fall of Babylon, heaven is being called upon to rejoice. Those who are called upon to rejoice are three groups that are identified, the saints, and that will include us, the apostles and the prophets, and the reason given is because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And notice those two prepositional phrases at the end of verse 20. In judging Babylon, God is doing something for the inhabitants of heaven against Babylon. Back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the souls under the altar were crying out to God, you will recall, saying, how long, O Lord, will you refrain from avenging our blood? And here God is answering the cry of their heart and judging Babylon. And all of heaven now is being commanded to rejoice in God's righteous judgment that is now befalling the great city of Babylon. And so I have a question for you. Does it bother you that heaven is being commanded to rejoice over God's total destruction and judgment of Babylon? Does that bother you? Would you say, man, that's not something to rejoice in. That's something to weep over. And on one level, that is true. But does it bother you that heaven is being called upon to rejoice over the judgment of Babylon? If it bothers you, then you likely have little concept of the larger war that this judgment of Babylon is bringing closer to its end. Think back to the news that broke at the end of World War II that Berlin had fallen. That was great news that brought great joy to much of the world. Why? because it meant that the war was virtually over. It meant that the headquarters of evil atrocities had been brought down. It meant that Germany's evil military machine had been halted. It meant that those who were being imprisoned and scheduled to be killed by the command of Berlin would now be able to go free. It meant that a new government could now be established that represented something different. And that's why heaven can rejoice in this moment now that Babylon the great has fallen and been judged by God. Heaven can rejoice that God has shown himself just and righteous. Heaven can rejoice that no more slaves and human lives will be trafficked the inhabitants of heaven can rejoice that God has shown himself true to his promises to judge the wicked and to judge Babylon and to rid the world of her. They can rejoice in the fact that earth now has suddenly become a more habitable place, habitable place for the people of God whom Christ is soon going to be bringing with him when he returns to the earth in the next chapter. So this fall of Babylon is a glorious moment worthy of great heavenly celebration. And I hope you feel this 
And if you don't feel it, Revelation 19, the first 10 verses are going to be very uncomfortable for you. Because we're going to see heaven throwing a party in the next chapter over this in part. John himself, the apostle, is feeling the joy of this and maybe so much joy that in the back of John's mind, he's beginning to have some doubts about what he's seeing. Maybe he's asking, is this judgment of Babylon really going to happen like this or am I just dreaming? Will Babylon really fall like this under the judgment of God or is this just my overactive imagination engaging in wishful thinking? But John will be assured that what he is observing and hearing is true and that Babylon will be judged in this way. And this brings us to the final verbal event in connection with the fall of Babylon here in Revelation 18. Number seven, an angel guarantees the permanent destruction of Babylon. An angel guarantees the permanent destruction of Babylon. Observe what happens in verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, no doubt creating a violent splash, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. A millstone, as many of you know, was a round heavy stone used for grinding wheat. And some of these stones even in Bible times, could weigh over 3,000 pounds. And John describes this stone that this angel picks up as being like a great millstone. And this angel picks it up and throws it into the sea and then makes a promise saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. What I'm doing to this stone, that's what's going to happen to Babylon, and that's a promise. It will be thrown down and then sink, never to rise again. The angel who throws the stone into the sea continues in verses 22 and 23, saying, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer why for your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Notice the reason given at the end of verse 23. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by what? By your sorcery. Great wealth became concentrated in the hands of a few because all the nations of the world were deceived by the sorcery of Babylon. The Greek word that is translated sorcery here is the word pharmakeia. And the use of this word indicates 
that the practice of drug-induced occultism will abound in Babylon, where the masses will make use of drugs to find insight and peace and to open themselves up to the spirit realm and the powers that be will make use of drugs to control the masses. And based on the language used here, you can be sure that sorcery and drug use will be a huge part of the economy of the coming Babylon. It will be used as a means to deceive the world into her ways. And this will prove to be very helpful in lining the pockets of the merchants of the earth that make their living off of this stuff. And this sorcery will be one of the reasons stated here in this chapter that Babylon the Great is judged by God. And notice the second reason for God's judgment upon Babylon given in verse 24. This is how the chapter ends. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all those who have been slain on the earth. When the Allied forces defeated Germany decades ago at the end of World War II and began to liberate the prison camps and discover the horrid conditions of those camps and discovered the mass burial grounds of the dead, it only then became fully known the full scope of the evil that the Germans had perpetrated upon the Jews and suddenly a righteous war against Germany was seen as all the more righteous because of what was discovered. And something similar is being pointed to here. The real reason for Babylon's destruction is that in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And I want you to notice the prepositional phrase at the beginning of the verse and at the very end of verse 24. Speaking of Babylon, John says, in her, so you can mark that, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all those who have been slain on the earth. So in her and on the earth, speaking of anywhere on earth. So evidently, the blood of all those who have been slain anywhere on earth was found in her, in Babylon. And such language indicates that Babylon, while it is a city, a literal city, it is more than a city, but an entire system that spans the globe. And it also likely indicates that we're not waiting today for Babylon to emerge. It's already here because the blood of every saint and every prophet slain anywhere on earth in any age will one day be discovered in Babylon. And this is one of the great reasons why there's a target on this city for God's judgment and why God's judgment falls upon Babylon with the severity that it falls here in this chapter. 
We're going to stop here for today. But as we process the gravity of what we have covered this morning, we should not lose sight of the layers of what John is revealing to us here. I think we can say the junior varsity version of Babylon that stood in John's day was Rome. And John's vision here foretells the fall of Rome as much as it foretells the fall of future Babylon. And we need to have the perspective that John is expressing in these chapters as Christians who are living even today in the world. We understand, we ought to understand that this world is a sinking ship. In fact, write this reference down, 1 John 2, 17. John tells his readers that the world is passing away and also its lust. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. In that passage in 1 John 2, John isn't promising that the world will begin to pass away one day. John, 2,000 years ago, is telling his readers that the world is already in the process of passing away. It has already struck the iceberg named Jesus at the cross. And most people on earth at the time weren't even aware of the impact of that collision. And they continued on their merry way, but the fatal wound on the world system was inflicted at the cross. And one day this world system is going to sink. And John speaks about its sinking here in Revelation 18, which shows a remarkable amount of faith in the heart of this old man, exiled on the island of Patmos, a prisoner to Rome. As the commentator Robert Mount says, listen to this, remember that Rome is right now, during the days in which John is writing, Rome is right now at the height of her glory. She rules the world, and nations serve her interest as obedient servants. Her power is unchallenged. Over against this mighty monolith stands a lonely prophet in exile on a barren island in the Aegean Sea. As Rome carries on her opulent lifestyle, unaware of any pending danger, John sings her funeral dirge in the past tense. Imagine how this message fell on the ears of believers in the seven churches of Asia, facing persecution and loss. They are led by the prophetic spirit to understand that their oppressor will soon be destroyed. The future is not desolate, but filled with joyful expectation of the vindication of their faith. John's message could not have come at a more appropriate time, unquote. And John's message comes at an appropriate time for us as well. As we look around us and we see our Western society degenerating and heading toward its demise, we should not be shaken but keep our eyes on Christ and on his eternal kingdom. 
The church of Jesus Christ has survived the rise and the fall of many nations and empires over the last 2,000 years, and it will survive the fall of Western civilization. But in the meantime, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? If we take our eyes off of Christ and begin to put our hope in earthly countries and kingdoms and cities, then we will be shaken and we will be dismayed. Just like the kings and the merchants of the earth are in Revelation 18. Their example teaches us that if you put your trust in this world system, your story is going to end very badly with you wailing in disappointment. But if in contrast, you put your trust in Christ and his kingdom, your story will end with rejoicing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter speaks of Christ and says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. That statement there in 1 Peter 2, 6 is one of the great understatements of Scripture. He who believes in Christ, let's just say he won't be disappointed. That's what Peter is saying. This is the Christ who will come to earth in Revelation chapter 19. This is the Christ who will establish his kingdom on earth. This is the Christ who is worthy of all of our hope and our trust, not simply because of what he will do, but also because of what he did do 2,000 years ago. Think about what he did for us at the cross when he looked upon us under God's righteous wrath, he didn't stand at a distance in order to not get caught up in our torment. No, he moved toward us. And he literally bore the very judgment that we deserve for our sins. He took the fall for us at the cross and God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand. And from that position at the right hand of God, Jesus is today giving out forgiveness of sins and salvation and eternal glory to those who humble themselves and repent of their sins and believe in him. And one day he's coming again to establish his kingdom on earth. And we're gonna see that actually narrated for us in Revelation chapter 19. And anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. You put your trust in the world, you're gonna be disappointed. You put your trust in any idol, you're going to be disappointed. You put your trust in you and your own wisdom, you will be disappointed. But you put your trust in Christ and you will not be disappointed. And if you're here today and you have never turned your eyes upon Jesus and put your trust in him. I challenge you to repent of your sins and look to him, believe in him, and call upon his name. Don't put your trust in this world system which is passing away and one day this world system will collapse 
under the weight of the judgment of Almighty God and give way to the reign of Jesus. Believe in him. Call upon his name. If you do, I can assure you two things. He will be delighted to save you. And number two, you won't be disappointed. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very heavy chapter that leaves us with deep and mixed feelings. It's a difficult chapter to both study and to preach for this reason and to hear. But this is your holy word that you give to us as a congregation for our profit. And there is much for us, Lord, to draw from this chapter, to be challenged by, to be rebuked, and also encouraged by. May we not be guilty of worldliness, and if we are, to repent. Show us where worldliness is in us, that we might call it what it is and renounce it in a spirit of repentance. So wean us from all things worldly that are a part of this world system that we are not dismayed and that we can renew our youth like the eagles because our eyes are fixed on you even when kingdoms may crumble around us. Because we know, Lord, that you are sovereign, you are in total control of all of the affairs of human history and that ultimately every kingdom of this world is destined to crumble and give way to the mighty kingdom of Jesus, which will stand forever. And those who believe in you, Lord Jesus, will not be disappointed. Others will wail in dismay. The saints will not. Others will weep. The saints will rejoice. Others will experience eternal sorrow and the saints will have nothing but eternal joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And a trillion years from now, those of us who know you will look at one another in conversation and say, what do you think about what it has been like to be in the presence of Jesus for the last trillion years and the world is such a distant memory and we each will say, well, I have not been disappointed. Because you are a great savior. And we will give testimony in that moment, Lord, 
to the truth that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And that we can take to the bank. And on that, in you, Lord Jesus, we can rest our hope. And if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that whose heart you are touching and drawing to yourself, I pray that you would save them today. We will give you all the glory. Draw them in your love and your grace to the foot of the cross where they will repent of all of their trusts other than you and deposit all of their trust in you and experience the salvation that only you can give. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,